God, I thank you for the way uh, you speak through your word to our lives and that you illuminate the scriptures to pierce our hearts, to give us understanding uh, as an invitation into what you want to do uh, in each and every one of us. So God, we pray for that to happen in our lives today, that your spirit would move on us and would encourage us. Uh, there'd just be moments in here where we would hear from you. So thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you spent any time with us in December, we did five teachings on the first two chapters of Matthew, and there's one thing you should have taken away from it. A king is born, right? Chapters one and two through the genealogy, through narrative, through that little bit of cleanup work we did last week on prophecy, we saw that Jesus is king and we have a king, uh, but we also then have a problem, don't we? We've got this proclamation that a king has come, a king has been born, but the first thing we should be asking ourselves is, where is his kingdom? Yeah, where is his kingdom? I mean, here's this fantastic, fabulous, incredible announcement of the low-born king entering into the world, yet Israel is not on the throne. They are not ruling a region. They have no realm right? They have no land in a sense. Where is his kingdom? Uh, Not only that, we should be asking ourselves, what is the nature of his kingdom or what is his kingdom going to be like? If we have a king and we're going to talk about a kingdom, we also need to then discuss who makes up his kingdom and what are the people like in his kingdom. Now, here's where you do not fret or worry. I'm not going to talk about all that today. Okay, I will not discuss each and every one of those aspects in great details. In fact, Matthew is going to do that for us over the next 28 chapters, for us probably 52 to 60 weeks. All I want to establish this morning is this king has come and he has a kingdom. And these four questions should be constantly on our mind each and every time we approach any of the Gospels, whether we're reading them by ourselves or in community with one another on a Sunday morning, we should be thinking about this idea of a king and his kingdom. And why is that important? Well, in my household, uh, I do not go by King Brett. I'm just going to establish that now. So I freed my wife earlier from that. She does not call me Lord or any of those things. But in a sense, and I just want you to, I want to tease this out with you. In a sense, uh, in our home, I act somewhat like a king. How, how so? Well, I have a realm or a place in which I rule over. I have four young children, if you did not know that. And these young children are part of our responsibility in raising them and training them and teaching them all sorts of different things. Now, now here's the deal. In our household, I have this realm, I have this place, I have this also authority in their lives. And now what's so intriguing is the moment we leave our house, my kids don't just get to be unruly monsters wherever we go, do they? 
They don't get to act and do as they please. Why? Because they know we have established a rule over them, a way in which we desire for them to act and behave in society. So I just want you to think through this on some small scales. There is a king, King Jesus. This king has a kingdom. He has a rule and he has a realm. You can think of it in terms of a father there with his children or think of it in terms of nations today. Uh, North Korea has a kingdom. And that land that they have, they have a dictator, a ruler who oversees it. Uh, Not only that, he has a people. He has a group in which he places rules over their lives in which they must operate, function, and act in. Is North Korea like America? No, no, it's different. We have a different place, a different realm, a different piece of ground. Yes, that's very true as well. But we also have a different makeup of what people are like to some degree, rules that we follow, things we're allowed to do, not allowed to do, that are different, that are different than North Korea. Now, these all kind of fall short. But what I'm trying to establish early on here is that we have this king And if he's any kind of king at all, he must have a realm in which he rules. And not only that, he must then have a people that participate in that realm. And then he has a rule or a way of conduct in which these people act, how they participate in that kingdom. There's a rule over a place and a rule over the hearts of people. So you can think of this in these terms, space and place, when we talk about the kingdom of God, a physical space and place that also then makes up a a conduct or the culture or the way that people are. Now, we have to get some backstory in order to really understand this. And as you know, I'm a huge fan of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And every three weeks, we come back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 because it gives so much context to understanding the scriptures at large. So hear that first and foremost this morning. In Genesis 1, when God is creating, we hear of this portion in which he creates the heavens and the earth and the skies, and then he places these stars in the skies, and they are to do what? They are to rule for the times and the seasons. So God creates space and place. God has his space in the heavens. God has created space for man on the earth. He then has created these stars in the skies in which seasons are going to be ruled over. They're going to be determined. And then immediately following the placing of those in the skies and the talking about of the rule and the rain, you've got animals created and then man is created and something specific is said about man. They're to have dominion or rule over the land. God's got his space, his place. He creates man then through whom which he is going to rule on earth, cultivate, create, and make ruling through man to bring into fruition the really flourishing of mankind. So man created to rule. Now, if you know the story, they want to do it on their own terms They don't really want to participate in the way that God would have them participate. It begins to unravel. It inverts on itself, caves in, they're kicked out, and it's messy. But what this establishes from the very get-go 
is God has intentions and plans to rule through humans on earth. Can we just log that away in our minds? It's not some wistful flying away into some crazy space in which there's just some soul and there's no portion of the body and we flutter into eternal worship with God. He has intended from Genesis to rule through humans on the earth. And we caved in as we sinned, crushed ourselves in that, but he still intends to partner with humans to rule over the earth. Now, you have to fast forward a little bit because there's some story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then there's this time of captivity in which they're slaves in Egypt and they're brought out of Egypt and they're taken through the wilderness to the land of Canaan. And God then is going to give this land to Israel. They're going to want to establish for themselves a king to rule over them. They've been led by the presence of God They're now in their land, and they want a king. And we see that God asserted in the Old Testament his kingly rule over his people, Israel. But what they ended up doing was marring this in practice. The kings of Israel were generally really poor advertisements of God's rule, weren't they? The kings of Israel led the people often into idolatry, They sinned themselves, and they had all sorts of problems even within their own families. Not only that, but the people were really poor representations of the rule of God over their lives. There was a way in which Israel was supposed to function and operate in order to declare to the world around them who Yahweh is and the love and care and graciousness of Yahweh. And they did a poor job of that, often being taken captive by the idolatry of other nations. The people failed to be representatives of this king. Both in kingship and in servanthood, they were imperfectly embodied. And that leads us then to Matthew, to this king and his kingdom, his rule and his reign. And so what I want to do is I want to read the first 12 verses to you with a little bit of that backstory in mind. And we're going to focus the majority of our time on this term, this idea of the kingdom of heaven. It says in verse 1, in those days, John the Baptist or John the baptizer came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork in his hand, he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Okay. Now, as we discuss and talk about this this morning, you have to have it in your head. It's God's desire as he created humans and partnered with them there in the garden to rule that that's what he wants to establish yet again. And here is Matthew writing the words of John the Baptist. And these first few words, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this phrase is unique to Matthew alone. It's used some 32 times, and it's only found in his gospel. Some believe that because Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, that he chose to not use the phrase kingdom of God because he did not want to invoke the name of Yahweh, which was very sacred. They would not even write in the vows for Yahweh. He did not want to use that in order to talk about God's kingdom. And so they would assume possibly that he's referring to some sort of other way of talking about the kingdom of God. Now, what this has done in our minds for Western evangelical thinkers, is we've been able to parse this out and say, the kingdom of heaven is a place that is in a far, far away galaxy, right? I watched a lot of Star Wars over break with my kids. That's where we spent the bulk of our time. And so in our minds, when I think typically growing up in Western evangelicalism, kingdom of heaven, it is a space and a place that I am going to go to someday. And I'll rest and I'll reside there. But the very first words out of Matthew's writing in John the Baptist's mouth are what? The kingdom of heaven has come. Interesting. It's not some place that I'm trying to go get to, but it has actually now come unto me. This idea, this phrase, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, when you look at it through the gospels, it's actually interchangeable. Uh, Depending on where you're at there, you can put in either one if you'd like to. It's not where God's people will go after death. It refers to the rule of heaven that is of God being brought to bear in the present world. That's why we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the contemporaries of Jesus in that day knew that the creator God, he intended to bring justice and peace to his world here and now. It's a commentator by the name of Jonathan Pennington, and I think he's correct when he says this. The kingdom of heaven is not used out of reverence for the name of God, but instead about the contrast between what God wants and what humans are doing. Okay, let that sink in. What God wants, have you ever thought about that? It's New Year's. I got a list of what I want God to do. Big list, right? Just get us through this next year, please, Lord. We've got these ideas, but, but here's the idea that is being presented here. What does God want? His will. And what are humans actually doing? Not just 
individual actions in your heart and your life right now, but as we look at the world at large, how do we treat and care for one another? What is prized in our world today? What do we think of as something that will determine your success or your value or your purpose? And there's a contrast being drawn here. Scott McKnight, you're going to hear a lot about him from me over the next year, wrote this. The kingdom of heaven was Jesus's way of saying that God's rule is invading the land and challenging the corrupted rule of human kings. This is a fascinating announcement. It's a threatening announcement to any who are on the scene. It's basically a proclamation that God has come and the world is absolutely in disarray, being torn apart. And there is a different or a better way. What does this mean? First of all, it means that God alone is king. Second thing it means, God is now ruling in King Jesus. Third thing, Israel and the church live under the rule of King Jesus. Forgiveness is granted through King Jesus, the Savior. And the fifth thing, the rule of Jesus will be complete in the final kingdom. As N.T. Wright says, this is the story of God become king. That's what Matthew is declaring. This is absolutely a political agenda that we're going to read over the next year. So if you ever say, Brett, why aren't you more political? I'm going to get super political. There's a different kingdom, and it's a lot better than the one we're living in right now. And we're going to explore and talk about who is in this kingdom and what his rule and his reign actually looks like in our lives. This is expressed in four ways when we talk about the meaning of the kingdom of God. It expresses the ultimate rule of God over his world, as Revelation makes painfully clear. It stakes a claim. We are his creatures and we should serve the king. And this is what I'm incredibly interested for each and every one of us. It describes the realm in which the kingly rule is acknowledged, meaning you receive the kingdom by responding to his kingly rule and surrendering to the king, and it points to a future when God will be all in all. This will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what we're exploring through the Gospels. McKnight goes on and says, the story is that in Jesus God now rules. God's kind of ruling is saving, rescuing, atoning, justifying, and reconciling. The cross and resurrection redefine the kingdom in all directions. Israel is not the same. Obedience is not the same. Love is not the same. Peace is not the same. Justice is not the same. In other words, to say the kingdom draws near is to make a Christological claim is to say the kingdom is now present in Jesus. So what this means for you, what this means for me, is that there's going to be a term that we refer to frequently here, and it's the now but not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. Now but not yet. The kingdom here realized, actualized in our lives as the king is reigning in each and every one of us. And even then, where we go serves as an outpost of his kingdom, a bright shining light. Just like when my kids leave my house, they're still ambassadors of the Anderson family. Word gets back that they're up to nonsense and there's going to be some problems in our household. Trust me. Because I have a rule over them, right? Understand that. 
And so he has a rule. And this kingdom is about the dynamic of God's kingship being applied here and now in every aspect of society and culture. It is here and now, but we all wait, who are followers of Jesus, the consummation of the kingdom when he returns physically, right? That is the not yet aspect. So what does that mean? There is a king and he has a kingdom. There's then people that make up that kingdom. God as king has a reign and a rule in our lives. This results in Christian living. Now, for whatever reason, over the last 15 years, 20 years, if you nerd out in the Christian world of lots of books and arguments and podcasts, if you love to spend much time in popular thought going on, there tends to be some battling going on in this realm. What does Christian living mean? Do we even need Christian living? I mean, come on, that's works, right? And that's doing something. No, 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 no. That is actually something that we are freed from to then go pursue and live in. And there's been a lot of back and forth on legalism and as I shared a few weeks ago, antinomianism and what that actually makes up. Here's what you need to understand. If there is a king and you have come under this king, I promise you there is a rule, there's a way in which he would have you to live. First Peter talks about us as a contrast culture. We can be a creative minority of people, but we're distinct as we're called out from what the rest of the world looks like. We're elect exiles, and the king is forming and shaping all of our lives. What does that mean? There's certainly demands of the kingdom. But before there's demands of the kingdom and before you get mad at me and write me a letter, first I want to talk about how do I become a part of this kingdom. Jesus talks about this a lot. To enter into the kingdom, this happens when you relate to the king. Jesus calling a people to himself, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He is the embodiment of this kingdom. And unlike the kings of Israel... With Jesus, there's a new way to actually relate to God himself as he expresses and embodies who the king actually is and he claims this rule and authority over our lives. It's displayed through this servant king who comes and dies for us. A servant king who gives himself for us and simply invites us to repent to believe, and to follow Jesus. This is what he's inviting us into, relationship and life with him. But what I will tell you is new birth translates into new ethics. Once we enter the kingdom, we're reckoned to be his sheep, not wolves, wheat, not tares, good trees, not bad trees. This new birth which leads to new identity, leads to a new life. Or one of the ways that I like to think about it is because you have new identity, it activates new activity in your life. Activity of worship from self to God, from things in creation to God. Activity of service 
I used to do things only for myself, but the way of Jesus calls me to a much different radical way of living towards others, an activity of behavior. So what this is proposing to each and every one of us is there is a king, he has a kingdom, he has a realm, he has a rule. Are you a part of it? How do I become a part of it? John the Baptist tells us here. Now, you can flip over to Luke. It's very interesting. Luke chapter 3, I believe. And we're going to get to that in just a second. I'm going to pair these two stories together. You have John the Baptist teaching. And he's talking to those who are coming out to listen to him. And he says really three things to them. One, you need to realize who this king is. Two, you need to respond to this king. Three, you need to then repent from the way that you are living. First of all, he says, realize the king has come. And so he says, prepare the way. Make right your hearts is what he's essentially saying to each and every one of us. What this means is, are we going to conform to the way of the king or are we going to tell the king the way it's going to be here this morning? Very big difference. Now, in that day and age, uh, when a king would come to town, they didn't have the best road systems. Uh, Their road systems were like driving in BLM land, right? Up there in the woods, on the hills, and sometimes there's a log that has fallen over, and you need to either, with your car, if you drive a monster truck, go over it, or somehow get around it. There are ruts in the road. There's all kinds of problems and issues. Think ancient road systems. They were not meant for heavy use or travel. Think Highway 97 when you get in those rivets, and all of a sudden it starts to pull you, and just those rivets get deeper and deeper and deeper. There wasn't systems created to maintain those styles of roads. And so when a king would come to town, a king would never come alone. He would always come with an entourage with him. If you've seen Gladiator, you can get the picture of Marcus Aurelius coming out to the battle to watch them take over whoever it was they were fighting. And he's got this huge entourage that follows with them. And there was the wagons and the horses and more people. And so when a king comes to town, they would actually need to make their roads or conform their roads so they could drive and get there on them in their wagons and with their horses and with everybody that came alongside of them. And there would have been an excitement about this. The king is coming. Let's do this. We're going to see him pass by. This is going to be an event. Everyone knew if you wanted to have the king come, things had to change. Things had to change. And here's the announcement that John the Baptist is saying. The king is coming. You need to change. He doesn't say mend your roads, but he says mend your lives. How do we do that? How, How do I mend my life, John? How do I prepare this in my heart? John the Baptist is saying, if you want to receive him in your life, you need to treat him as king. He is proclaiming that this king has arrived and you need to turn to him. But but what does that look like? Well, he's going to talk about two things. The first thing is respond. Respond to him. It's not go out and do a lot of stuff. It's not go get your life right. 
It's not remove every ounce of sin from your life right now so he can finally dwell in your heart. That would be impossible. But you must accept Jesus as king and the way that he proclaims it to be. That I am Lord, I am ruler. Martin Luther says this, what is the first commandment? Have no other gods before me. What does that mean? This means put your trust, excuse me, this means you must not put your trust in anything. There should be nothing that gives you more hope than God. There should be nothing that gives you more self-esteem than God. There should be nothing that gives you more satisfaction than God. Luther goes on, if you're ever despondent, if you're ever bitter, if you're ever paralyzed by fear, if you're ever lying, if you're ever committing adultery, if you're ever breaking any of the Ten Commandments, or if you ever want to, it's because you're not treating him as king in your heart. Mend not roads. Mend your lives. What does that mean? Make him king. Make him king. I gotta be honest. I gotta think about that a lot. I do. Because there's these moments in life where where we have opportunity to say, you know, my way right now, like if I just kind of twist this truth, I'm going to look pretty good. If I hide this problem, Nobody will see it. They're going to continue to think highly of me. Tax season's coming up. Man, if I can just show 100 less bucks, and I'm going to be in a different bracket. Sounds like a great idea. Is he king in your heart in that moment? Is he ruling? Is he reigning? Or what is? Yourself? Your ideals? Your ways? See, we're told to make him king of our heart. And obedience follows from that. When you think about Israel in this moment, they wanted a king, but they didn't want the king to be like Jesus. They wanted a king to trample out all their problems and the oppressors. Or in the story that we'll come to at some point when Jesus feeds the 5,000. This is an incredible story. He just breaks bread and keeps breaking it and it is multiplying and he's feeding the crowds and then they gather more up and they go to the other side and the crowds, they go running after him. And in John, we get a fuller story of this where they say, we want you to be king. He's like, no, you don't. What what do you mean? Well, if you want me to be king, you have to eat of my body and drink of my blood. And everybody left but the disciples. (laughs) And even they were a little perturbed and troubled in their hearts. What does that mean? People have an idea of what they want from Jesus. And they want Jesus to mend to their way and to their lives. People want Jesus as long as he's the Jesus of prosperity. And I'm not even just talking about some sort of prosperity gospel in which you give and you get back, but prosperity of certain kinds of blessings or promises of the way family and life will go. And this is taught all throughout Christianity and it's absolutely convoluted the waters and made it muddy and messy of what people think about Jesus. It's not about getting Jesus to conform to your life, what you want. That's often how so many of us pray. But it's how can I conform my life to your ways and what do you want to do in this moment right now? We have issues with this, don't we? And the problem is, is we make God out to be created in our image rather than us being created in the image of God. And when I do that and tell God how he must act and how he behaves, he ceases to be God. And I have assumed authority, kingship, or godship in my own life. 
Church, I'm just telling you right now, this is a massive problem amongst evangelicals. I want God if he does it my way. What he's saying is, no, you mend your ways to his. You follow him, but it's not going how I planned. Join the club, right? That doesn't make him any less a king. And it's such an Americanized Western way of thinking of Christianity. If God is always agreeing with you, you're doing the right thing. You're doing the right thing. If you never feel convicted or confronted with the scriptures, I'm going to be honest. If in the next six weeks when I'm teaching or Carson's teaching or Michael is teaching and you never have a confrontation with the words of Jesus, who's your God? I'll tell you what, somebody who has more authority in my life, when they confront me, I better start listening, shouldn't I? And Jesus is going to talk about some really interesting stuff, like money, sex, justice, greed, forgiving your enemies. What we have done for so many of us is we've created a God who always agrees with us. And that's not good, because that means we're in his place. That is incredibly dangerous. What do we do? John says, repent. Adapt your roads to his. This is interesting. I don't know if we'll get into the Luke passage, but that'll be okay. But it is 310, so we'll get there maybe in a moment. But he says, repent. Matthew 3, Luke 3, all these crowds come out to see him. And he says, you're a brood of vipers. We read that and we're like, but what does that even mean? Well, in Genesis, we understand the idea of viper or or the snake there, the serpent, to be Satan. And so he's basically saying, you're of Satan. You're in his pit. Jesus, in John 8.43, goes on to say uh, something along the lines of, why don't you understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot bear to hear my words. You are of your father, the devil. You are sons of the devil, Modern day translation, your mom slept with the devil and produced you. That's, that's what he is getting at to some degree here. Just the street level, easy interpretation there. That's a diss. And you will do your father's desires. John's first words to his listeners are this indictment. You are people in Satan's grip. You are children of his nature. You need to repent. Sure is a way to win a crowd, isn't it? (laughs) Seeker-friendly movement. What a moment, John. You could have won them all over, and instead you call them sons of the devil. Why does he share this very offensive message? He's telling the people three things here. You think your heritage has saved you, but you're dirty. You need to repent. He was telling the people that their own righteousness, the very works that they think they're doing in the name of God, is going to save them. But he says, no, it's not. He is attacking them to the very core of what they believed. I get the opportunity to have a lot of awkward conversations when the pastor bomb gets dropped in any conversation with a new person. Uh, Just the other day, I actually got this um, sweet new haircut my wife made me get. I was working on a man bun. She canceled the man bun. Just so you guys know, sorry to disappoint everyone. She said, no man bun. I'm very, very deeply sorry. I'm a little troubled in my heart uh, that I had to get this 
uh, great new fade, I think is what you call it these days. And so I got this haircut, and I'm talking to my, my barber there, and, and she's new there, and we're just chatting it up, and just life and all this stuff. And finally, well, what do you do, Brett? Uh, I'm a pastor, and the conversation went silent for five minutes. Just had this, like, robust conversation, and all of a sudden it was like, hmm, regretting every F-bomb I just dropped in front of him. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, hey, it's okay. So we, we recovered, and we'll, we'll see where it all goes from there. Uh, here, here's the reason I share that. So many people have this concept of, God's going to receive me based upon my merit and actions. I want to live my life how I want to live my life. I'm going to do some good deeds along the way, and God will just receive me. John says no. He says you need to repent. And once you repent and receive Jesus, the Holy Spirit fills you. Now I want to tell you how to live. You don't just magically live that way. What do you think we're going to learn in the Sermon on the Mount? We're going to learn what his people should look like. We're going to learn how his people should act. We're going to learn what the makeup of his kingdom. And when we fail at it, we're going to be reminded that there's grace in it. But he has a rule because he has a people. Where do you think you have the rule? In Luke, the people ask in 10 through 14, what should we do? John the Baptist says, you should do things like be honest and be generous and share what you have. It stems from repentance, but repentance brings along that new heart, that new life. Here's what I want to leave us with. Just a question or two. The question I want you to ask as we enter into a time of just praise and worship and responding in communion in a moment is, God, where do I personally need to align myself to come under your rule in areas I've ignored or not been aware of? Where do I need, I mean, I know a lot of you are just crushing it. You're looking at the Ten Commandments like the rich young ruler and going, yep, 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 I'm good. And Jesus is like, well, got to go sell something. Oh, I don't think so, Jesus. <laughs> I doubt that. Who's God? That's specific for him. And it might be specific for you. I don't know. Where do I need to align and come under his rule? Is he king? Does he have rule in your heart? then understand this, and you can even pray this. God, will you be merciful where change is slow? Will you continue to be slow to anger, gracious, and compassionate, like we read about in the psalmist, but also faithful to cause us to grow? I'm here this morning to tell you, King Jesus came. King Jesus rules. It's not in just some spiritual sense but physically in our lives and where we go. He has a reign. He has a place. And he will come back in a physical presence. And he will set all those things straight. Oh, you believe you me in that, right? Trust that. But now, now, he rules. He reigns. And he's bringing heaven down through us. Just like in Genesis, he wanted to cultivate, create, allow for humans to flourish, reigning through them to beautify that world, to multiply. He wants to do the same through us. That is his plan. Let's pray. God, thank you. I pray that there is clarity in some of this today. 
pray that we're not just a bunch of holdouts waiting to get to heaven, but that we can be kingdom bringers now and we'd actually understand that. That we would enter our workplace this week and connect Sunday to Monday and Sunday to Tuesday and what we learned today, Sunday to Wednesday, and that in the classrooms that people teach in, in the sphere in which you have them running businesses, that the kingdom would be reigning and people would be invited into your glory, into your light, into how you want to work and move. And that we would be a people that actually reflect who you are as we're being changed by you daily. God, restore in us what was broken and lost. And may we reflect and be image bearers to the world around us. God, may we understand that we are not waiting for the kingdom, but your kingdom has come and you rule and you reign.